Okay, very excited here today to be discussing There Will Be Blood. The movie is a 91 slash 86 on Rotten Tomatoes. It earned eight Oscar nominations with wins for Daniel Day-Lewis and Cinematography, where they actually beat out Roger Deakins, but I think it's just because Deakins was up for No Country for Little Men and Assassination of Jesse James, so I think Deakins split his own vote. The Deakins vote got split, I bet. I bet. Just because, like... There Will Be Blood is, the cinematography is amazing, but also it's it's Deacons. And, man, we've talked about this before, how good 2007 was for movies, but it really can't be overstated how good this year was. And you know what's funny is, like, this, There Will Be Blood, any other year is probably my favorite movie of the year, but not only is it not my favorite movie of 2007, it's not even my favorite Western from 2007. <laughs> well, do you count No Country for Old Men as a Western? I do. Yeah. Okay. You know, and I would too. And obviously, Assassination of Jesse James is a little more traditional, although even it's not like, I guess, you know, horse chases and those kinds of things. But yeah, I would count all of them as Westerns. Because even There Will Be Blood, I guess it is set out West, but it's, I don't know, what, what makes a Western? It's like, I think most people think cowboys and Indians and, I think and it's, um, robbers and stuff, but it's more just the setting than the people, right? Yeah, well, and, and I think movies like, uh, well, kind of to a lesser extent, there will be blood, but movies like No Country for Old Men, you know, your, your Taylor Sheridan movies, so like, you know, Hell or High Water, Wind River, Sicario, those are all considered neo-Westerns. Right. So it's like... The modern day evolution of the Western. Which would be more there or no country for old men than too, because it's set in the nineteen eighties. Exactly. Yeah. Basically it's anything set in the Western United States rural areas dealing with maybe people who aren't well, I say not as well off, but like in this movie, Daniel Plainview becomes essentially a millionaire. So it's almost like that grit. It's kind of that old West American grit. Right. The, the, the grit and blue the, blue collar. Yeah. Right. And a lot of times, well, like with uh traditional westerns, you have the, like a very clear delineation like this is the good guy this is the bad guy like this is the sheriff who runs the bad guys out of town kind of thing whereas with the neo-western it's a lot more gray area you know like in no country for old men everyone in that movie is a criminal same thing like hell or high water the main characters that you're rooting for they are bank robbers right right there's a little more robin hood than yeah yeah and even then not as virtuous as a, as a robin hood right and the neo-westerns also kind of focus a lot on the West dying. Mm. So like that old, you know, the old West that's glamorized and romanticized by Hollywood, how that image is, or that time in the West is over. And now it's a lot more poverty. You know, people are on a lot more hard times. People are being exploited by big corporations and the government. So it deals a lot with, with themes like that. Right, a lot more deeper stuff. And uh, just because my brain went there, massive, massive side note is that what you just said is actually not too dissimilar from Game of Thrones. So the whole idea behind, I mean, my understanding Game of Thrones is it's it's a spin on if if fairy tales and you know knights and princess stories from back in the day are westerns, Game of Thrones is your neo western because the whole idea is that. In Game of Thrones, essentially, Robert destroys the evil king and marries the beautiful princess and it lives happily ever after. Right. But then George R. R. Martin, Martin is showing us, well, the happily ever after is not so happy and it's really dark and serious and there's a lot more going on. Right. Kind of like you're talking about with the neo-westerns. Yeah. And it's not all, you know, 
cowboys being the good heroes and saving the day. It's everything's a lot more nuanced and gray. Right. Well, and kind of to a, a lesser extent, that's Lord of the Rings. Because the whole idea of Lord of the Rings is that in Middle Earth, magic is dying out. You know, the mm. mystical, the fantastical oh, yeah. is is on the decline. And, you know, the quote-unquote age of men. Right, which is essentially our modern world. Right, is on the rise. Huh. It's uh, similar similar themes. So, with There Will Be Blood, I'm kind of curious because you are way more of the re-watcher than I am. So, this was only the second time I had seen There Will Be Blood. This is actually only the third time that I've seen it. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, I'm trying to get my head around how I feel about it. So, in 07... I appreciated it, and I'm obviously a huge Daniel Day-Lewis fan, but when people were talking about it potentially beating out No Country for Old Men for Best Picture and thinking it was the better film, I was like, y'all are crazy. It's not even close. Why is this a conversation? And I would say on rewatching it, I still mostly feel that way, but I also feel like, oh, maybe I get it now. And I'll follow up on that, but what's your take on on then versus now and your overall view of There Will Be Blood? So when I first saw this movie in 2007, it was in the theaters. Uh, I think it was actually with Sam Kasner. Okay. And this was right around the time. So I was only 14 when this movie came out. (laughs) Right, right. So this was kind of around the time where I'm like first learning how to watch movies, like how to actively watch movies versus just like passively taking in the flashing pictures. This is a pretty heavy film for a 14-year-old. Yeah, yeah. And I think I kind of took it for granted almost. So, like, before this movie came out, you know, I was I was watching many of these movies on your recommendation. But, you know, older movies, like the the classics, spent a lot of time watching movies off the, uh, the Academy Award winner shelf at Epic DVD. Oh. <laughs> and so when this movie came out, it was like, oh yeah, this movie, it's it's like those movies. Okay, it felt that prestige. Yeah, but I didn't re- I didn't realize how big of a deal that was because I was watching basically a collection of the greatest movies of the last you know thirty, forty, fifty years, and then I watched this movie that just happens to come out that same year that I started watching all those movies. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, this is like par for the course of all these really good movies. And now looking back, it's like, no, this is like an all time great movie. I just happened to start. Wa- I just happened to see it in theaters after I was watching those movies. So I think I didn't really understand how good it was. Like I really liked it, and I thought it was really good, but I didn't understand how good it was. I guess if that makes sense. Okay, and then on rewatching, that's just kind of continues to be reinforced. On rewatching, I I still love it. Yeah, I the visuals are amazing. I I can't get enough of Daniel Day Lewis as Daniel Plainview. I I think I might like this is kind of a this is a big statement, especially you, Rich. But I think I might like this performance better than Gangs of New York. Well, I'm actually going to go a step farther. Okay. <laughs> so I still this is not one of my favorite movies, but it's almost a little bit of the uh, power of the dog thing, where I just don't like anybody, and so I'm not necessarily enjoying the story. And I and I think I maybe even have a few issues with the script. That being said. What hit me on this rewatch that did not hit me in 2007 was this is probably one of the best made films ever. Like the the quality of production and what Paul Thomas Anderson did in just making this film. This might be one of the best productions ever. And Daniel Day-Lewis as Daniel Plainview might be the greatest performance in film history. Not not just my favorite DDL performance. This might be the greatest performance in film history. 
even though I'm only kind of like met on the film as a whole. I I uh I can't say that I disagree with you. I trump carded you, didn't I? <laughs> well, yeah. So it's, I mean, I can definitely understand the argument there. Well, yeah, I'm a huge DDL fan, so maybe I'm biased. Well, yeah. and and <laughs> off the top of my head, it's not like I'm. I, I don't know that I can think of a better a better one. Right. I was just kind of blown because it's also so he's he has the reputation as a scenery chewer, and even though I'm I'm a huge fan of his, I also do not always appreciate the quote scenery chewers, which I guess side note to define that term, because I think we say it a lot and we, we know what it means. It basically means an actor who is so over the top on stage that they're all, but chewing on the scenery for effect. <laughs> yes. And so, yeah, when they're chewing the scenery, they're basically hamming it up or overdoing it. Right. But I feel like there's way more nuance here and that, and that nuance here. And that goes part of into what Paul Thomas Anderson is doing, that it's an over the top performance, but there's a lot of nuance in there. And Daniel Lee-Lewis is doing a lot of the work that the screenplay is not, I feel like. But I'm saying, to Thomas's credit, or Paul Thomas Anderson's credit, he's doing that in the, even in the edit and in the direction and the performance. And just like, he's getting this nuance to this relatively simple story out of Daniel Lee-Lewis's performance and how he's editing around it and everything. I just, it's, it's masterful. I just don't particularly en- enjoy it because I don't like any of the characters. Hmm. I don't know. Like... It's it's amazing, and it's just not one that makes my top ten or twenty all time. Hmm. Okay. But if it does for someone else, I kind of I kind of get it. Where was this on your 2007 rankings? I didn't start top ten list until '09. Oh, okay, okay. Before '09, I kind of always mentally made a note of my single favorite movie. Okay. And I would just I don't even know if I wrote it down, but I was kind of like, but I, and and I also was I tend to tended to align pretty closely to. Uh, the academy so like no country for old men was my favorite picture from from 2007 uh, no country so, for old men it, it i i agree it is also my favorite i think it's yeah. i think it's okay. no question the best movie that came out that year and for me it is definitely a top 10 maybe even top five favorites okay like, of all time nice. it's nice. so good it's so good but uh and then we're all over the place here because we're actually <laughs> really excited to talk about this movie here <laughs> to, to your point too so like from the Academy's standpoint, too, to kind of give an idea of how good this film is, yes, it did not win Best Picture, but is it safe, not safe to say, but is there a good chance it wins Best Picture any other year of that decade? I uh, Yeah. It just happened to be up against There Will Be Blood, or against No Country for Old yeah, Men. Yeah, it just, it just happened to come out in 2007. Right, kind of like Cabaret losing to The Godfather. It's like Cabaret might win every other year of the 70s, right. but it was up against The Godfather. Or O'Toole doing uh, Lawrence of Arabia the same year... That uh, Gregory Peck does Atticus Finch. It's like there you go. It just right. happens to be two top, you know, S tier, best of all time performances or movies in the in the same year. It is crazy too watching it with. Obviously, this this film's kind of been you know memed a little bit, but just there's so much that's iconic. And obviously, when I'm watching this movie in 07 in the theater, nothing's iconic yet. I, the milkshake thing kind of caught on right away, mm-hmm. but then there's so much of this. You're just watching it seems like. It is kind of like iconic scene after iconic scene after iconic scene for a movie that's just 16 years old now, which is the, I abandoned my child, I abandoned yeah. my boy, and uh, of course the I drank your milkshake, and yeah. uh, I, I, you, I, you would say I'm an oil man, and it just kind of yeah. like, he's just very... Just, Give me the blood, Lord! Give me the blood! <laughs> yes! Oh, God. So it's like, it's kind of a bizarre thing. I don't know if I've ever loved a performance as much in a movie that I'm not as on board with. So like, I guess... To kind of get it out of the way, so my a lot of my issues with the film are probably around 
a little bit, I guess it's maybe the plotting in the Paul Dano character. So first, this whole the whole idea that Paul, not Eli, is who comes to him and gives him the information about the land. And then when you get there, it's unclear if, wait, so this is Eli. Is, was he Paul the fake name he was using to get them here? And I think that's kind of what I understood. But then he's like, he hadn't mad at his dad for like, your darn son Paul telling him here. And it's like, wait, what's going on? And so it's with the twin brother, but then they never actually established any of that. So a lot of the script just seems to be like a random bunch of crap that's happening. And there's no real good through lines and arcs, I guess. And so so the, the story is a bit of a jumble and it's just the performance that kind of anchors the whole thing. And Paul Dano can't hold a candle to DDL because no one can. And so I feel like he's just completely outmatched and you're making this rivalry, but it's a completely mismatched rivalry. Like there's no... There's no I, okay. back and forth boxing match. This is Mike Tyson beating up a three year old. That works for me though. I re- I actually like the Paul Dano character slash performance. I like the weaseliness of him, and it's I think it's it's not so much that he's supposed to be this foil for DDL. It's that he is trying so hard to. It's fun to watch him try so hard to be the foil and keep failing. For me, mm, I I, okay. I I like that dynamic. Because even at the end, how he equates himself like, oh, look, all the, all the adventures we've had over the years. I was like, you two hardly knew each other. What the hell are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't know. So I actually do think he works as a foil, though, even if the character itself doesn't work. So it is interesting to see the parallels. And I think thematically that is what is kind of interesting is that the, the, these two men do actually parallel each other quite a bit. And I mm-hmm. think that a lot of the, the conflict and tension comes from, they are like the only two that see each other for what they really are. Yeah. So Daniel Plainview is the only one that sees Eli as essentially a charlatan who right. just is just up there doing it for his own ego. And, you know, of course at the end he even says, you know, say you are a false prophet. Right. Yes. And that God is in a delusion or whatever. And at the same time, while Daniel's doing all his stuff, Eli is the one that sees through him. And the, all you care about is money and exploiting us. And you actually have no, you're trying to put on a good face to be the family man through your right. son and all these other things. And I, I understand that that's a facade and a good, a good, uh, a good thing for the community. Right. Right. So they, they do both see through each other. They both are about their own egos. Yeah. So, so that, that dynamic is interesting and kind of, and kind of well, well played. Um, I did actually read online with the whole twin brother thing. That was a last minute thing. So again, I didn't, I didn't verify this, but one site had mentioned that Dano was just cast in the Paul role and the actor they had, cast as eli had like dropped out at the last minute and so they said oh shoot uh they're twins can you do it dano and just oh had dano play both parts oh okay so that explains why it's kind of weird and out of nowhere then and why and why it doesn't really kind of go anywhere right like the the twin thing doesn't really matter that much but even if they weren't twins the paul character is still so bizarre if he has ties to that family back there, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's just kind of, it's just kind of odd. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I don't think the script is super solid from a story structure standpoint, but the performances kind of make up for all that and the dialogue yeah. makes up for all that. One more thing about the, about the Eli Daniel rivalry thing. I, I saw an, an article, it was, you know, some analysis about the, the end of the movie um, that I thought was kind of interesting. Basically, the, author was saying that they that the at the end of the movie when 
Paul Dano and Daniel Day-Lewis are having their big, you know, argument, their big fight. And Daniel Day-Lewis tells, you know, makes him stand up there and say, I'm, I'm a false prophet. God is a superstition. And then basically chases him around the room and then beats him to death while yelling, I am the third revelation. <laughs> that that is symbolism for corporate greed overtaking religion as the source of power for America, basically. So, like, prior to the the movie, you know, you, you like, most of your, well, a, a lot of power came from, you know, religious institutions, and then that that's, like, the transition from religion as the, as a power thing to money and, like, corporate greed as a power thing. I don't know. Hmm. I, I, I mean, I guess that's, I think that's fine for a fan to read into, but like, if Paul Thomas Anderson came out and said that, I'd be like, I, rolling my eyes. I think it was, no, 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 no. I, I, I think it was just someone was okay. saying, this is what, this is my interpretation of what PTA is trying to symbolize in this moment. Not, okay. it, it wasn't like a, yeah, it wasn't like an interview thing. And what's also interesting too, is you think about the, the fall. So obviously Daniel throughout has kind of become a... It, it's it's basically the the very things that gave him his success are now what's taking it away at the end of his life here. I feel like because he just he's just too. He even says I have a competition in me. He he's just yes. too. He's too tied to winning, right? You know. So basically, tells his son now years after the fact, you you're you're a bastard in a basket. You're a bastard from a basket or whatever. Yeah, because he wants to go out on his own. Right. But yeah, so he's basically he's basically won. Essentially Daniel Plainview has won this entire quote game. Right. But then he I mean, we don't see what happens after this. The guy's going to prison. Maybe. Well, oh, because he's rich <laughs> and they hide it. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, well yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> spoilers alert for there will be blood. But uh a lot of this stuff is pretty obvious. And honestly, spoilers do not matter in this movie. No. This movie's not about that. This movie right. you you can't spoil the performance. I mean Unless you think we're doing a bang-up job, we're doing our little impersonations here. We can't spoil their performances in, in this movie. Right. The the audio-only impersonations of us doing Daniel Plainview are just as good as, as watching the real thing. <laughs> oh, man. That might that might be something for our side notes. It's just me trying to do DDL for an hour. <laughs> so, yeah. So, the, I guess the interpretation. So, I, I, the line, I'm finished, at, at, at the end is... I think there's a, there's a lot of layers to that and what it could mean. I mean, I think the simplest one is like, yeah, no, he's done. He's going to jail. He's finished. And he's just, but he's also kind of crazy, obviously, by that point in, in the film. He's just kind of in a murderous rage and, yeah. and lost it there. But yes, I do think that he wouldn't even necessarily fight. the. I think he's finished. I think he's done fighting and that the guy, his servant or whatever, uh, who comes down and witnesses it, is going to call the police and Plainview's not going to stop him. He's finished. He's done. He's going to prison. What do you think? Or other options other than that, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I'm. It's possible. It's better not to know. It's better left unsaid. I mean, I will say it's better left unsaid. This is kind of just for fun. You're right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think he could get away with it if he wanted to. But to your point, I... Right. I don't think he wants it anymore. I don't... Right. I don't think he does. I don't think he cares. Because I think... I think at that in he that won. moment he won. I drank your milkshake. I right. killed you. I won. I'm finished. Exactly. I I I drilled all the oil. It's all mine. I'm super successful. I killed my rival who I've been beefing with for decades. My life like my life mission is complete. It literally doesn't matter what happens to me from here on out because this I I've reached the top. Right. Because if he were to try to get away with it, essentially he's 
we don't know his relationship with the servant because it's the first time we've seen this guy the whole movie is at this final scene. Right. So we don't know right. that guy's level of loyalty or what their relationship is like. So there's a chance that that guy's loyal enough, pays him off, or it just he just keeps doubling down. He has to kill that servant now. And then it's just like, <laughs> it just becomes this whole thing. And it's just, uh, he's burying him under the floorboards of his bowling alley. I mean, so there's, there's also that. That also fits his personality in MO, that he might just like methodically now kill the servants bury them under the bowling alley floorboards, clean it all up, and be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, but also, like, what's his motivation? Like, he has he has no rival, he has no more competition, because he already has, you know, basically control over the whole oil business in his area. He doesn't have his son anymore. Like, everything is, everything's over for him. Everything is over. Right, and that's the kind of, it's kind of the dog chasing his tail. It's kind of the whole character of Daniel Plainview then, too. He finally caught it and didn't know what to do with it. He won. Yeah, exactly. And then now, and then now what? Yeah. Right. Okay. I think it's probably safe to transition into a little history now on the History of Film podcast. Yes. So first, yes, this is a fictional film largely based on the novel Oil by Upton Sinclair. Um, it was a tricky one to kind of place on our timeline. We're kind of cheating a little bit. And a lot of these, we kind of talked about already, a lot of these films get tricky to figure out when they place because this film takes place from 1898 to 1927. Most of the film does take place around 1911. But for our purposes, we're kind of putting it more in that 1902 spot just because we had to pick a year to put it. And that is kind of when we when we placed it. We'll be talking about other stuff from the aughts here in the coming weeks. So it's it's still uh, still kind of works. But it is a fictional story. Daniel Plainview did not exist. But a lot of the places in the film are real. So I was kind of certain. Anytime they would name drop like, oh, I came from so-and-so or I was from so-and-so in this place. It looks like most of the places were real. So we kind of Daniel initially kind of starts at Signal Hill, California. And that's a real place. Although we do start seeing some of our inaccuracies uh, right off the bat because Signal Hill is a place where there, it's like the, I think the Long Beach Oil Reserve. Or there, there is a lot of oil around Signal Hill, California, but it wasn't discovered there until 1919. So actually, that is a, a technical mistake uh, in the film here. The current city of Signal Hill, California, is home to about 11,000 people uh, and actually lies entirely within the city limits of Long Beach. So, like, Signal Hill is a city surrounded by a city. Mm-hmm. And so, am I, am I, is that, does that sound right? Is that where Plainview is when then that Paul character comes and tells him about land up in Northern California is around that Signal Hill area, right? I think so, yeah. Okay. But, and then when they go back to where the Sunday family is from, Little Boston is not real. So it's, I think Little Boston might be the only name or city name mentioned in the film that is that I could find that is not real. Every other thing, everything else I looked up seemed to be a real. Like when it, when his fake brother comes in, is talking about like, oh, I ran into from this place and this place. He's citing all real cities. Yeah, Little Boston, however, is is fictional, mm-hmm. but it is is kind of up in that Northern California area somewhere. I didn't actually figure out exactly where it was. Well, they're in. Um... Hang on. Kind of right near the Bay Area, right? Or just south of the Bay Area or somewhere around there. Yeah, so they, they mention they mention that they're in they're either in or near San Luis Obispo County. Ah, uh, okay. Which is it's like just north of Santa Barbara. Oh, so that's farther south than I was thinking. That's yeah. we're near the bay then. No, okay. no, no, no. Okay. But it's it's but it's further north North of, of Signal Hill. But it's right, yeah. it's it's north okay. of Long Beach, but it's it's not up near the Bay Area. Right. Okay. Okay. My bad. But again, I forget. I remember that they mentioned that. I forget 
if they if that's where they are or if they're just referencing something that's there. Oh, right, right. But, um, but yes, it is all set in California. Although they do mention, so when, uh, again, this character comes in purporting to be Daniel's long-lost half-brother, they even drop the phrase brother from another mother, which almost feels comical because I feel it. In 07, that probably wasn't as comical, but then that, that kind of became its own thing. I'm your brother from another mother. Yeah. And, uh, so it's kind of funny. It, it seems out of place when he drops it in this film, but I'm guessing in 07, it didn't feel as out of place. I don't remember when that phrase kind of became more popular. But they kind of mentions their sister in Wisconsin. So I almost kind of thought, oh, wait, so is Daniel actually from Wisconsin originally? They didn't really go into that, but... I think he is because it, that's how he finds out that that guy isn't actually his brother because he says do you remember that house in whatever the town oh, is that's right in wisconsin okay yeah okay yep yep that makes sense so oil itself oil is definitely a worldwide thing not just an american history thing but in, in our world history timeline we never really had done a deep dive on oil not that i did a super deep dive here but i was just kind of trying to ask myself some questions like how do you find oil how long have humans known about oil and it does go back way farther than i realized and you think about even like the bible mentioning pitch being used to like make you know ships and stuff it's like well that pitch is from petroleum right and that the word petroleum is latin for rock oil so humans have known about oil and, and petroleum from prehistoric times it was just this Oh, yeah, that's that flammable dark liquid that we see. It's, it, we basically just saw it as rock oil, and you could use it as fuel or lubric- lubricants in machines or, of course, not the machines 2,000 years ago, but, you know, pitch is probably the best example. And it's kind of just all over the place. So my other question was, how do you find it? And it is just kind of, I guess, it appears in, like, predictable-ish areas. You can almost be like, oh, if you have these certain rocks on the surface, there's a good chance that there's oil underneath where you see those rocks or you can dig a little bit and if it goes from this layer of rocks this layer of rocks to this layer of rocks then there's a good chance another whatever 50 100 feet below that will be oil just because that's kind of how the geology seems to be predictable is that kind of mm-hmm. what you saw as well or did you look at that angle? yeah well and there's some places where it is literally just coming out of the ground well true like we see in the movie where right. they're like they're hunting the pheasants and the kid just like steps in a puddle of oil that's just like seeping out of the ground. Sometimes it's that close to the surface. And that's Beverly Hillbillies. Like, right. The they shoot right. Beverly Hillbillies is Jay, Jay Clampett is shooting the ground and right. he like, just starts spouting out of the ground when he shoots the ground. Yeah. Um, and that may be a little hyperbolic. But yeah, so the first people weren't drilling oil wells a thousand years ago. That's actually not, that's not necessarily true. So. Oh, really? Yeah. So I, I saw that there was. Okay. So, well, just going back to you're talking about people have been, you know, talking about oil for like thousands of years. I guess um yeah. Herodotus, the Greek historian mentions petroleum yes. like that's like the earliest written accounts of petroleum being used in Babylon and Persia and then uh also mm. the Chinese using oil as far back as 600 BC and were actually drilling for oil with bits attached to bamboo poles. So I don't know how deep oh, they're really? drilling, but they were actually drilling for oil. And they actually used oil pipelines, too. They would transport it using pipes made from bamboo literally thousands of years ago. Okay, okay. Apparently that didn't get widespread. Or, we, or a lot of it was just we didn't see necessarily a lot of the uses for it. So anyway, we've known yeah. about oil for thousands of years, but the uses were so limited, people didn't necessarily go hunting for it en masse because its, its uses were relatively limited. Right. The other thing, this is uh, not exactly a side note because it is all going to kind of come full circle here, is... 
we take for granted in our modern electrified era, and we've talked about Thomas Edison and Tesla and all those things, and the idea of you know electric lights. Well, pre-electric light, we forget how how valuable lighting the dark is for humanity. Yeah, I mean, going back to campfires hundreds of thousands of years ago and things like that and just that the more if you can have light in the dark you can be that much more productive as a society and then so the sources of those of that evening light that night light is very very valuable for humanity so uh, there's a story i saw people you know back in the day would burn dried fish and birds as essentially cheaper candle options uh, to have light yeah. in the evening yeah, candles obviously very common with you know the wax and the string. So th- that was that was a thing. When you get to the 18th and early 19th centuries, this is when whale oil was kind of the king for providing that fuel for lamps and lanterns and and light at night. Right. You think about a Moby Dick. That's kind of all in that whaling industry was just kind of like massive for about 150 years there. And then in 1846. Kerosene was, I don't know if discovered is the right word, but the, the guy who developed the way to process kerosene as right. a option for fueling lights and lanterns. Right. And that essentially killed the whale oil business now that you're in the mid-1800s. Right. Um, it, kerosene was just cheaper and cleaner. Yeah. yeah, and petroleum's way easier to find. You don't have to go on a ship to get it. Once you find a deposit of petroleum, it's going to be there all the time versus a whale. You go out and find one whale and then... You come back in and then you got to go back. You got to go find another whale again. Also, <laughs> right, I, right. I thought that was interesting that they so they would get this petroleum, refine the kerosene from it, and then basically throw the rest away. Just discard it because they didn't have a use for anything else, which so right, right. Just to kind of explain how how it works, getting different products out of petroleum, they use a process called fractional distillation, which is basically you put petroleum in these big containers that are hotter on one end and cooler on the other end and so the materials with the higher boiling points will settle to the bottom Mm. and the ones with the lower boiling points will distill fractionally in the different areas to the top and they know at what temperatures the different materials come out of it okay so basically, crude oil is not one chemical compound. It's a mixture, and you're separating the mixture. Right. Essentially. Yeah. And it's... Yeah. So like, fuel oil is like the... Or bitumen, which is like the thick tar that you use for like uh, roads. Actually, I think the roads in Chini are... Uh, it's that, that black pitch that then they put the rocks on top of because right, it sticks. Right. So that's like the heaviest material that comes out of it. Okay. And then fuel oil... And then lubricating oil, diesel, uh, paraffin or kerosene, gasoline, naphtha, and then like your liquefied petroleum gas is like at the at the very very top, the coolest end. Hmm. So that all those products come from the same compound. Well, back in the day, they only knew how to get kerosene, and that's the only one that they had use for. So they would just get the kerosene out and then just throw the rest away, which like today is insane. Like. You could turn that into gasoline, diesel, you know, whatever. And they're right, just like, nope, right. not interested. Don't need it. <laughs> right, right. It, well, especially if you think gasoline, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty explosive. That's kind of dangerous. Better get rid of that. <laughs> right. Well, and actually, natural gas was the same thing. So any natural gas, prior to the 1920s, any natural gas that was produced in the oil drilling process, would they would just burn it off. It was like a waste product. Like, oh, yeah, this is it's like flammable gas. 
that like we get it when we when we drill the oil but like you know we don't really have a use for it and it's it's super flammable and dangerous so we just burn it just burn it into the atmosphere which you kind of get you're like i can see that your instinct would not be like oh okay we need to figure out a way to harness that and put it back in people's homes to light their ovens like or stoves it's like yeah well intuitive right and back then i mean it would have been it's so difficult to store because you have to you know pressurize it and it's like it's it's not back then it wasn't worth the effort right so yes with with kerosene so obviously people do have the whale oil lamps lamps and lanterns but kerosene kind of opened up the door for the essentially the way i understood it was with kerosene you now have for the first time cities around the world or at least in you know europe and america were lit at night on a massive scale for the first time yes so before that, it was a lot lot darker at night, and right. now you get to the mid-1800s, night is now light, and that, that will evolve over the next several decades as we go from gas lamps into the electric lamp, but uh, with kerosene, that's when you had all these, these big uh, gas lamps. Well, and that uh, I saw that there was a story of a guy, it was, I think it was the early, like the early 19th century um, in New York, discovered a natural gas deposit. And so he he owned a like a hotel or something, and he pipe basically had his own natural his a whole natural gas deposit that the only purpose was he piped it to his hotel and lit his hotel, and then that kind of grew into him lighting the rest of the town with these natural gas lights that would come from this natural gas hmm. deposit, and that was like okay. a tourist attraction. Like people would come from all over to see like oh this city that's lit up at night. It's not like anywhere else. The whole city's lit up. Right, they got all these lamps all over the place. Uh, right, we said so it was just something we definitely take take for granted nowadays. Mm-hmm. So now that kerosene is becoming popular, this was still mostly in the yes. Apparently, the Chinese have been drilling for a while, but like we, the U.S. and Europe, were not drilling for oil. It was it, all this kerosene was kind of just coming from those surface deposits that we had been talking about. So now is the time we're like, hey, how else can we get this on a larger a larger scale? So. It actually starts in the U.S., in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. So in May of 1859, you get the first modern oil well constructed near Titusville, Pennsylvania. Before, like I said, before this, people were just finding it on the surface, or they were. I guess there was something called brine wells used in making salt. Yeah, you could get a little petroleum that way. So, like, people knew about oil in this area for i mean for thousands of years basically because the native americans knew about it and used it used it too right and even even european explorers so the first the first mention of oil in the new world is actually from sir walter raleigh Hmm. he wrote about the trinidad pitch lake which is the world's largest asphalt deposit in trinidad um and that was in 1595 oh wow and then you know european European explorers basically, you know, were shown oil by the natives in that area in the eastern U.S. They just didn't really, they weren't really interested in it have because use for it. Was, right. Right. they didn't, they didn't have a use for it. It wasn't profitable. They were worried more about, you know, land or furs or, you know, something else that they could make more money off of. So like people knew about the oil for a long, long time, but it wasn't until the, the chemistry, basically you needed, you right. needed 19th century chemistry. Yeah. Right. Until the process for re- refining kerosene. And then, yeah, that first that first well in Pennsylvania kind of then caused like a, a boom in the oil industry. Right. And you would see. So you mentioned people coming around to see the kerosene lit or sorry, the natural gas lit town. Same kind of thing. People were watching this pump. Again, they were probably unfamiliar, as I was, with with the Chinese doing it. So they're like, <laughs> holy crap, just like a just like a water pump. You're pumping oil out of the ground. That's so crazy. Yeah. We never thought that was a thing. 
And so actually for a brief time, it's, it kind of led to a, a boom here. And then for a brief time afterwards, you might even see like forests of wooden derricks uh, in some areas in Pennsylvania before they kind of realized, eh, maybe let's space them out and get a little more organized. But it was almost just like a jumble at first. And then in three years, so it's kind of crazy, from uh, 1859 to 1862. So in those three years, U.S. oil production went from 4,500 barrels a year to 3 million barrels a year. And... uh <laughs> Side note today, we're at about 90, 90 million a day, but still for back then, it was, uh, yeah, and then it was kind of just the wild west of this oil production until uh, uh, one John D. Rockefeller kind of tamed it to become the richest man in American history. Um, so, yeah, you mentioned that the industry grew first in the eastern United States and then moved west. Actually, I, I saw the uh, the first well in Kansas was in Neodesha, and it was drilled in 1892. Neodesha. What is it? Neodesha. Oh, it's Neodesha? Okay, I, I had yeah. never seen I had never seen that that town name before. I thought it was Neodesha, but... Oh, okay. <laughs> Neodesha. All right. All good. <laughs> it's not like I grew up there or anything. Sorry, Kansas listeners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in, in California, where the movie takes place, uh, they actually began drilling earlier, and I think it's kind of because that, that whole, like, you know, we talked about things move generally in u.s history move from east to west but things will happen in california before they happen in the middle of the country just because of the way that right the, the west coast was settled because it's so close to the ocean um so drilling there actually began in the 1860s and then california led all states in oil production by 1903 so by the time that we see oh, okay. daniel plainview drilling for oil california was the top oil producing state and it actually held that top spot switching periodically with Oklahoma until 1930. So up until the 30s, California was like a huge oil producing state. And even today, I think it, it still produces something like 3%. I say, of, did it go to Texas or Alaska after after it was going back and forth between uh, California and Oklahoma? I, didn't, I, don't, I don't know who what it is, oh, what it is today. I just, I, when I was looking at California, it said that it kept a top spot all the way until uh, 1930. And then I just wanted to mention that as a whole, so when you think of like big when you think of big oil producing countries, a lot of the times your mind goes to the Middle East, um, maybe Russia. Right. And historically, that is the case. But the United States has always been a top producer of oil. And actually, since 2014, is the world's number one oil producing country. Oh, right. Because isn't there a whole, and that even part of like our whole global politics stuff is we're trying to not, we'd rather buy all the Middle East oil and save our own oil just kind of looking at the long game or is, is that not i don't know if that's if that's just a conspiracy theory or if that's actually true <laughs> that i i don't know enough about how all that works that yeah. i don't know i'm not sure how it works with us making more oil than like say the saudis but at the same time we're buying oil from overseas but then we're also selling our oil right so i don't understand all that right so maybe we're buying it and then we're selling it to europe i'm not i'm not sure I I, yeah, I am I not know. even going to pretend that I know anything about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so complicated. It's so complicated. I mean, yeah, I guess it is. As we go through, I mean, we're going to keep talking about movies in, Amer in American history here going going forward. I'm sure that a lot of these other movies are going to tie into oil companies. And we, that is kind of the, I mean, a lot of the big controversy that, you know, we get involved in Middle East politics and issues there because we want to have favorable oil deals when we're purchasing and all those kinds of things and right yeah but i don't know enough about yeah the production levels and 
course, right. yeah, we, then we could say it's like, well, yeah, they don't they don't want us to know, Logan. Well, and <laughs> man, and today it's like it's not even necessarily about just making oil to use. It's about well, what happens to the price of oil, and what does that do to the rest of the economy? Because transportation costs right, can factor right. into inflation. So if you have high oil prices, then that can feed inflation and make inflation go higher. And plus, you know, at at time of recording, there's a major oil producing country, Russia, has invaded Ukraine. And so the United States is involved heavily in sanctions. So they want to keep oil prices low, because the Russian economy relies a lot on oil. But Mm. Russia and also big oil producing countries like Saudi Arabia since their economies heavily rely on oil sales, they want oil prices to stay high because that means that they make more money. So it's it's a lot more complicated. Like, oil is such a huge factor. And also, there's even like a domestic political thing because you, as leaders in the United States, they want to keep inflation low. They want to keep the economy running well. They want They don't want people... I mean, even with the current electric car revolution right now the vast 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 majority of people still drive cars that are powered by gasoline and so you don't want those people to suffer when they go pay at the pump but you also don't want to necessarily be labeled as the pro fossil fuels you know not environmentally friendly person so it's it's really hard to to balance that in uh in domestic politics too um so something we've talked about before is the idea of just being in the right place at the right time. And Malcolm Gladwell has talked a lot about that. I think it was his book, Outliers, where he kind of talks about some of the most successful people in history, specifically looking at businesses. And it's kind of the debate between are they uniquely skilled? Were they uniquely skilled? Or did they just kind of luck into the right place at the right time? His argument was kind of both. The book Outliers is what gets into the whole idea of the 10,000 hour rule. And you Mm -hmm. look at um, a good example is like a Bill Gates, who basically was at the perfect age and perfect time to get hours and hours and hours of coding in. His high school was one of like the few in the world at the time that had this certain, you know, intro to programming software when he was at school and he was at the perfect age to kind of hit that. And then when he then hits a, a world, a job market where those skills are at the perfect time to you know take advantage of it as the internet blows up and bill gates becomes a billionaire so like it, it was right. both if you didn't have that skill it, he wouldn't have been prepared for the moment but but then if the moment hadn't hit if he had been too old or too young it wouldn't have mattered and someone else would have beat him to it yeah the other one i always think of is tolstoy also talks about that in in war and peace and we probably mentioned it before but the idea of was napoleon of his own merit always going to rise to power or was someone, regardless of a Napoleon, always going to step up to fill the void left by the French Revolution? Or is it the combo of both? And you can kind of just debate if it's merit versus opportunity versus a combo of both. In the case of Napoleon, I, I do think it is both. I think no matter when Napoleon is born, I think he would have, just the person that he was, he would have he would have risen to the top of something. If it wasn't to be the emperor of France, it would have been to be you know, the leader of his tribe if he was born a thousand years before, or, you know, the leader of a big corporation if he's born, you know, a few hundred years later. And then also, just because of the political environment in France, I do think someone, someone was going to step in. Someone was going to be 
there. Okay. Maybe they're not necessarily as successful as Napoleon, right. but I think someone steps up to fill that that void. Okay, and 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 I'm kind of on on the same page. Anyway, all that is to say, Rockefeller is definitely in. Of course, and I don't. I I read Outliers years ago, and I don't remember. I'm sure he's brought up in Gladwell's book as well. But he was definitely a right person, right place, right time kind of situation. And I didn't. I did because I didn't realize. So like, depending on how you calculate it. It's pretty easy to make the case that Rockefeller is the richest person in American history mm-hmm. because you can adjust for more than just inflation. Yeah. So the the interesting stat I saw was if you look at his wealth as percentage of US GDP at his time. Right, yeah. He his his net worth, you know, uh, 100 120 years ago was about 2 to 3% of US GDP, which if that were today, you're talking anywhere from 400 to 700 billion dollars for net worth uh, if you're going to do 2 to 3% of US GDP today just massively massively wealthy so how does he get to that point uh, so rockefeller was born in upstate new york in 1839 the family kind of just bounced around his dad was actually a essentially a con man snake oil salesman type guy like he was just selling whatever he could do to make a buck, multiple families in multiple parts of the country. Like this guy was just a complete kind of shyster whose son happens to become the richest man in American history. Rockefeller didn't really have a good relationship with his dad because of that. And his dad was kind of in and out of his life. And anyway, so they're in Ohio, in Cleveland. And when he's 16 years old, John starts out as a bookkeeper for a local produce commission firm, which my understanding is essentially that's just kind of the middlemen between farmers and consumers. So farmers bring in their goods. These commissions would then set up and sell them to the consumers and set the prices and you know just just anyway, kind of an intermediate firm there. And he was just kind of had a good knack for the numbers and all that kind of stuff. Maybe even saw as a teenager some of the little ways like, oh, if you do this shipping or if you get these, he was just really good at kind of, you know, looking at all the angles and corners. So even as a teenager, he ends up opening his own firm and was like more successful than like the firm he had just been working for. And so he's already just has a knack for running a business, maximizing profit. This sounds like Edison. Yes, yeah, they're very similar. Yeah, he's just not inventing things. He's just kind of doing it on the margins with these uh, produce commissions. Right. Yeah, yeah. But I just mean how how he was, you know, he was like the telegraph operator for a company. Oh, right. And then he's like, oh, wait, I know how to do this really well. I'm going to like set out, do my own do my own thing, and then just becomes way more successful than anyone that he had ever worked for up to that point. Right. So all that is nothing too crazy. But this is where it's all about timing. So you have this young, very competent, very ambitious businessman. He's 20 years old when a oil well is put up 100 miles away in Titusville, Pennsylvania. And so you have this 20-year-old up-and-coming businessman who's willing to take a risk and explore new markets. So he's very curious about what's happening and he could he expand with this budding kind of oil thing. And then the genius thing he had, the kind of the stroke of genius from the beginning for Rockefeller was, well, I don't want to be out there messing with the hit or miss oil drilling game. That's kind of sketchy and like risky. I'll just buy it from them once they found it. And I'm going to put up some refineries. So he invested tons into refineries and was just kind of mm. buying then the petroleum 
And because he was basically just first, not exactly first, but he was early enough. There were other refineries, but he just kind of aggressively pushed it. And he also kind of called his shot too. He's setting up all these refineries. Well, he's setting up his refinery in Cleveland before the railroad is even connected from Pennsylvania to Cleveland. And so that once it does, now that oil is getting there that faster, and it's not like, oh, hey, the railroad has come through. Now maybe we can start building a refinery in Cleveland. Ah, well, shit, Rockefeller already did that a year ago. And so he's just, boom, just hitting yeah. the ground running. And then he just quickly then starts buying out all the other refineries in that area. So basically he's building up that monopoly that he's kind of known for, buys all the other people out. Uh-huh. And then he can do the stranglehold thing where like, now that I have all the power, I'm going to sell my kerosene or all these other products. I'll sell at a loss until you got a business because I'm bigger and can afford to take the loss. So you better sell to me now right. or I'm just going to strangle you and you're going to go broke. Yeah. Again, there was no laws against all these practice, uh, non-competitive practices. They basically exist because of Rockefeller kind of putting these stranglehold on these markets. So by 1880, so that's another, another 20 years, by 1880, Rockefeller was refining more than 90% of the United States' crude oil. Which is crazy to think about. Right, right. <laughs> so 10 years later is when you get the uh, Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. Basically, it's just yeah. the law. It's, and my understanding, it still exists to this day. It's, kind of, it's, all, it's all that convoluted legal stuff I don't quite understand. But it is kind of to prevent these monopolies. This is what, you know, uh, in the early 1900s, we'll talk about Teddy Roosevelt here in a couple episodes, but all of the trust busting and eliminating monopolies, all that goes back to this. I'm sure even the game Monopoly you can almost argue, is that is that main character Monopoly, is he almost a version of Rockefeller? Like, it is kind of these yeah. breaking up of these monopolies. And so, Rockefeller, anyway, short, short version, crazy successful, becomes the richest man in America. But what's funny is, so 1911, which is actually, this is kind of funny, and ties back into the film, There Will Be Blood, because we said most of that film is set in 1911. Well, 1911 is the year that the government broke up Standard Oil. They eliminated the monopoly and forced Standard Oil to become a bunch of different companies, like 34 or something like that. But what's ironic is the biggest beneficiary of Standard Oil breaking up was Rockefeller because he now goes from the highest shareholder in Standard Oil to the highest shareholder in 34 different companies that all net value go up to be greater than Standard Oil was combined. So it was a huge windfall right. for Rockefeller himself. Yeah. Also, by 1911, he he was essentially retired by that point too. In the movie, isn't isn't Standard Oil? Aren't those the guys yes. that uh, come in yes. and try to they try to buy they try to buy the wells from Daniel Plainview? They they offer him a million dollars in 1911 money, right? Right. And he gets all uh, offended, and then he you know builds his own pipeline, and he gets offended because they uh, the the businessman keeps telling, oh you know do this for your son, do this for your son, like. Trying to tell him, like, oh, hey, you know, if you sell to me, you don't have to worry about the business anymore. You can just go be with your son. And Dato Plainview's like, number one, don't tell me how to right. raise my son. But it also, also, Dato Plainview is, he doesn't care about the son. He's like, no, no, no. I, I, that's, I don't care about my family. I'm here for the business. Right. But yeah, those, those, so those guys that he's talking to are from Standard Oil. Correct. And so that's also where I would say, now I guess this is the year that they get broken up. So, but at the same time, so, so I, on one way, I want to say maybe it's a little bit of a mistake to have the Standard Oil guys doing all this aggressively in 1911 because they're about to be dissolved. But at the same time, those guys was, was still continue to work for one of the subsidiaries that branches off from Standard Oil. So even if it's not the full United Standard Oil, 
well, I mean, it might be Standard Oil of California that you know mm-hmm. they're still working on behalf of, and, and all those all those businesses. It's not like they shut down; they just kind of branched off and become. So, what's crazy is basically any oil petroleum company you can name today, odds are it can trace its lineage back to the breaking up of Standard Oil. So, oh yeah, when when Standard Oil was broken up, they actually only, only yeah, they only controlled about twenty nine percent of the oil production in California when they were broken up. So it actually would have been other companies like Union Oil, uh, which we do see Daniel make a deal with them. The whole that's kind of like the big sticking point is he gets that that pipeline through that guy's land. That's what gets him that yeah. deal to avoid the transportation costs and all that kind of stuff. He gets that deal with Union Oil. That is correct. They were founded in eighteen ninety. If you see, you see them more out west. I don't know if you have them in Phoenix there, but if you see those the seventy six stations that are kind of more out west, uh, the seventy six mm-hmm. gas stations, the big orange ball, yeah, those were actually not from Standard Oil. Those are from Union Oil, so they actually were one of the few ones that are not mm. dating back to Standard Oil. Although, ironically, in two thousand five, Union Oil merged with Chevron, which and Chevron was just Standard Oil of California or whatever, and it kind of so they did actually ultimately then get bought up by that same umbrella of standard oil, even, huh. even though it wasn't until 05. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at the little chart that they have on Wikipedia that shows all the yeah, companies yeah. that it broke up. And it's like Exxon, Texaco, Marathon Petroleum, Conoco, Phillips 66, like all these like famous right. massive oil companies all used, like they can all trace their lineage back to standard oil. That is, right. that is kind of crazy. Right. So, so you think about Rockefeller's wealth and it's like, okay, what, what are we talking about? All these oil companies are crazy rich. Now imagine they're all owned by one man. Yeah. That's how rich Rockefeller was. <laughs> right, yeah. That's probably the best way to think about it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh. So I really didn't, I mean, I did listen to a audiobook about Rockefeller called, called Titan, and, uh, but I wasn't, I, here I wasn't going to really talk about his whole personal life and all that. I don't think that, that's, we'll, we'll be talking about forever. But I would definitely say he's, you know, he's, he could be worth, uh, well, we always talk about our most interesting tournament. Rockefeller actually, he himself was not an interesting guy. He was just a businessman. He's not Daniel Plainview. He's kind of just right. a boring teetotaler, very little controversy. Just he was just a businessman. Like there's, I mean, you can get into stuff with like, his business yeah. practices being, you know, buying people out, not caring if they go broke, and kind of being very competitive. But he also gave a lot to charity. But it's, I, I don't know. It's it's not uninteresting. But he's not going to go very far in a most interesting person in American history tournament because he just he he was just rich. He was just a rich, good oil guy. That's it. Like there's, he's right. he, he personally was not very interesting. That's kind of all about all that I have then about uh, Rockefeller. If you want to talk about Upton Sinclair at it kind of at this time dealing with a lot of these, actually, kind of may even tie into this turn of the century. You definitely see a lot of this trust busting yeah. Teddy Roosevelt type stuff and, and a lot of these horrible working conditions, which is something up to Sinclair was kind of really uh, shining a spotlight on. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so Upton Sinclair, he wrote the book oil with an exclamation point, And that's the book upon which there will be blood is based. Although it's really loosely based. So I had never read, the, I'd never read the book oil, but just when I, looked it up to see what the similarities differences are. Basically, the only similarity is that it's like a father-son oil duo. And that's That's it. Pretty much where the similarities that yeah, the characters they're not named the same and actually the book focuses more on the son. So why would he not just call this an original screenplay? Because it is technically based upon the first few pages of the book. Huh. Okay. So, I don't know. But it's also probably like public domain at this point, so it's not like he's going to get in trouble. 
I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Huh. I'm not. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to call PTA. See what's up. Yeah, yeah. Well, and while you're at it, you know, just find out why. Uh, find out why Top Gun Maverick had to be an adapted screenplay too, because that doesn't make any sense. Oh, right, right. The Oscar rules are stupid. Are bizarre on that. Yeah. But anyway, back to Upton Sinclair. <laughs> so he was born in Baltimore in 1878. So he was while he, he was writing, you know, about the working conditions of uh, at this time in a lot of different industries. Uh, but he would have been a contemporary of Daniel Plainview if Daniel Plainview right. was a real person. So he grew up, uh, Upton Sinclair grew up with an overbearing, super religious mother and an alcoholic uh, businessman father. His parents weren't rich, but he had family who was rich. So growing up, he was exposed to both high and low income environments. And that actually informs a lot of his writings later on. He wrote adventures and comedies to help pay his way through school. Um, and he would actually use stenographers so that he could write faster. Uh huh. And in some cases would use stenographers and would write up to 8,000 words a day. Oh my gosh. Just grinding out stories. Wow. To, you know, these like, these like, you know, dime store novels to pay his way through, through college. In 1904, he spent seven weeks undercover in the Chicago meatpacking district and wrote probably his most famous novel, The Jungle, um, about what he witnessed there. The novel focuses on horrible factory conditions, both for the workers and also gross stuff that they were doing to the meat. Um, also about the struggles of the poor, mostly immigrant workers in the factories. The novel was wildly popular, became a bestseller, and actually led to reforms like the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 and the Meat Inspection Act of 1906. Basically, the the public outcry after this novel came out directly led to those two laws being passed. He also wrote King Cole and the Coal War after traveling to the coal fields of Colorado in 1913 and 1914, writing about the working conditions in the coal industry. And then he wrote Oil and a, a novel called, it's either Fliver King or Fliver King. I'm not sure mm. how to pronounce it. F-L-I-V-V-E-R. Uh, oil is about working conditions in the oil industry. And then the Fliver or Fliver King is about the auto manufacturing industry. So, and this is also kind of a right place, right time. You have all, you know, all these big industries at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century where, you know, working conditions are super horrible. And Upton Sinclair is, you know, has the right upbringing to be well off enough to go to school, but have been raised in a family that was poor enough where he can relate to a lot of these huh, right. poor factory workers and, uh, you know, coal field and oil field workers. And then writes about their struggles. So again, kind of a, a right place, right time thing. In the 1920s and 30s, he was actually a producer on several films. Notably, he was friends with Charlie Chaplin, who talked him into being a producer on Sergei Eisenstein's planned movie, K Viva Mexico, uh, or uh, K Viva Mexico would be the Spanish pronunciation, uh, in 1930. And that's actually an interesting story that maybe we'll talk about when we get to that point in the timeline, uh, probably better talked about when we talk about Charlie Chaplin specifically, okay. but how that movie was going to be made and then never came out, but was, you know, consider maybe would have been one of Eisenstein's best movies. It's a, it's a really interesting story. Right. And, and quick side note, too, I, I, you 
quickly mentioning Eisenstein. We've already done a couple Eisenstein movies on the podcast. Like Eisenstein is like that same Battleship Potemkin guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Potemkin. And what was, did, did you do another one of his? Ivan the Terrible. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Ivan the Terrible and, and Potemkin have both been both been covered on the show. So Sinclair also had a political career, which I didn't I didn't know about. I only knew him as as the the writer, but he had a political career motivated by his love of socialism. So he was a member of the American Socialist Party in the early 20th century. He did briefly leave the party because he actually supported America's entry into World War I and the Socialist Party was against intervention. But he then rejoined the party in 1920 after the war was over. He founded the Chicago, or not the Chicago, the California chapter of the ACLU in 1923 and ran for Congress in 1920, ran for Senate in 1922, and ran for governor of California in 1926 and 1930, all on the socialist ticket. He didn't win any of those elections. In 1934, he ran for governor of California as a Democrat but was defeated by the incumbent, Frank Merriam. During that election, Hollywood studio execs were all basically united against Sinclair because of his workers' rights, socialism attitude. And so they actually put a lot of money into films attacking him. And that is actually covered in a movie that I don't, we may or may not do on the show, but the movie Mank. Oh, okay. um, the yeah, yeah, yeah. David Fincher 2020 um, is covered in, in that where Upton Sinclair is played by Bill Nye, oh, Bill Nye, the science guy, Bill Nye. Okay. I kind of vaguely remember that now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so after that, after the failed governor election, his life isn't really that interesting for the rest of it. Okay, he basically okay. just returns to writing and writes numerous books. Um, if you go on his Wikipedia page, the number of books he wrote is absolutely insane well eight thousand words a day is absolutely bonkers yeah well that i mean that was in college okay but but even even after uh you know from 1930 all the way until his death i mean he was writing all the way up almost to his death and he died in new jersey in a nursing home at age 90 in 1968 oh it's crazy about thinking him and yeah being around until the 60s i'm looking up how many pages is eight thousand words (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay 8,000 words is only about 16 pages but if you're doing that on a daily basis that's that's still pretty prolific yeah so one other thing that's crazy to think about that we haven't really mentioned yet we're talking about this massive oil industry boom in the late 1800s early 1900s that's all pre-automobile so like Rockefeller became this massive rich person in the petroleum industry that didn't have to provide gasoline for cars because they didn't exist yet. It was still that big of an industry before the automobile. And then, like you, know, you were saying right. earlier, one of the essential like byproducts they weren't even super interested in at first, gasoline ends up being. Oh, I guess we could probably fuel the cars with that. Like, just right. kind of crazy. And then I and that's something we, maybe we could talk about in a later episode if it fits in. But like figuring out as cars were invented what to fuel them with that wasn't a given gasoline is not the automatic one thing you would use there had to be a decision made and becoming industry standard and all those kinds of things and uh but yeah just kind of interesting that all this predates the automobile we do see an automobile in uh when they are in 1911 they're driving around a very early i'm sure it's some early ford model t type thing i'm not good with early cars but uh maybe a little bit after that i'm trying to think anyway i don't know about cars but we do see a car in the film which may be 
Is that our first car we've seen on our timeline for American history? Oh. Did the Gold Rush? I don't know if the Gold Rush had a car. I don't think it did. Yeah, I mean, in theory, some some of these might, might have had yeah, some of these might have had flash forward like Edison the Man, you know, ends in 1929 when they're talking about stuff. Like maybe there was a car in the background there we didn't notice, but yeah, generally speaking though, yeah, it might have been the first car on our timeline there as we get into 1911. That pretty much wraps up our discussion of there will be blood. There's a few other things we're going to talk about, but for that, we're going to send you over to our Patreon to hear more about our side notes. We're going to talk about a little bit of the history of American Sign Language, which we do see briefly in the film because Daniel Plainview's son ends up deaf after an accident. And we, we see some sign language there. So we'll talk a little bit about ASL. We're also going to talk very briefly about why we did not do the film Cimarron, which was a Best Picture winner that apparently had really bad reviews. So I'd originally planned on including it right here in our timeline because it kind of crosses the turn of the century here as well so we'll talk about that over on patreon if you go to patreon.com slash history and film we'll talk a little bit more about things that are less related to the film here today but if you want to follow us over there you can and if you have any other questions comments or concerns don't hesitate to email me at simmons at tracknerds.com and join us next time on the regular feed here where we will be getting to the Wright Brothers with the film The Winds of Kitty Hawk. 